So this morning's talk uh, will address the, the theme of, of solitude. And that will be a, a reflection on uh, what is traditionally called the Guhataka Sutta, uh, the discourse of eight on the cell, literally. And as you have in your handout, I've given you the, the background to these uh, four poems. They're from the, the Atakavaga, the chapter of eights, from a collection called the Sutta Nipata in Pali, which is considered both by the tradition and by modern scholars to be one of the earliest uh, strata or layers within the, the Pali materials. And the... Um, English academic uh, K.R. Norman points out that uh, these four uh, poems that I've selected uh, seem to be the original core of this chapter of the eights. In other words, they have something in common. They're in the same meter. They're all of eight verses, none of the other of the chapters of the eight are in eight verses, weirdly, and they're in different meter, they're different styles. And one of my projects this year has been to, uh, uh, to, to, to make a study of these four poems as though they were a separate freestanding work. So I'm kind of ignoring the rest of the chapter of eights, although another of the pieces in the handout Quarrels and Disputes is also taken from there. And I'm treating them both as um, uh, an example um, of an early period of, of Buddhist uh, discourse or teaching, but also I'm treating them as a work of literature, as poetry. I'm trying to somehow find a balance between trying to recover that, that very old voice, the echo of whoever it was who, who, who wrote these or, or recited these poems originally, um, and trying to respect that this person was, was writing or speaking uh, within the constraints of a formal poetic structure. But let's start actually just by reading the text. The creature concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. Hard is it to let go of what drives us. Hard to be free from the wants that bind us to the thrill of being alive, hankering for what's gone and to come, hunger for those delights now. No one else can save you. Obsessed in dumb pursuit of pleasure, you embark on a lonely, unbalanced life. You cry out in anguish, what will become of us when we leave here? 
Be someone who practices right now. Don't be thrown off course for the sake of what you know to be unbalanced. Life is short, declare the wise. I see people tremble on this earth, compelled by a thirst for what's going on, weak men gabbling in the mouth of death. Their thirst for it is and it is not unquenched. You see them tremble for what's theirs, like fish in shallow puddles of an arid gorge. When you know this, act unselfishly. Form no attachment to what's happening. Embrace what you meet and don't be obsessed. Subdue desire for both dead ends. Avoid indulging in what you reproach yourself for. The wise are not mired in views or words. Embrace what you perceive and cross the flood. The sage is untied to possessions. Having extracted the arrow, he is vigilant, not longing for this world or the next Well, the first question for me was not only the first, it's an ongoing question. Who is speaking? Who is, who is, whose is this voice that comes through, I think, very vividly and with a very keen sense of metaphor? The, you know, the fish um, flip-flopping in this arid gorge. And also a person who is, is keenly and acutely aware of the dilemma he or she faces um, in this life. And in fact, we start with the idea of a person concealed inside a cell, a cave, which again, I suspect, has to do with the whole idea of being on a retreat of having withdrawn from the world and now finding oneself in this in this uh, this solitude this aloneness and yet it's there rather than leaving the troubles of your life behind that you suddenly encounter your own inner demons and I think what this poem is trying to, to point to very much is um, the true meaning of solitude. It's not about going into a guy house or some retreat center or a cave in the Himalayas. Uh, the solitude in the deepest sense has to do with, with a quality of mind, with a, a presence of being in all situations. The text is called a sutta, or a discourse, a sutra. And yet I find it hard, actually, to 
hear this voice as the voice of the historical Buddha, actually. I don't know why. But it somehow doesn't sound like the Buddha. It sounds perhaps like a, a monk, poet of an early period in Buddhism in India. There's one hint in the very word, <coughs> in the first line, guha, which is usually translated as cave. I've translated it as cell. And this might be a reference to some of those very early monasteries we still find in India today, um, which have been carved out of rock, like Ajanta and Ellora and others, which are called uh, guha, uh, caves, cave temples. Possibly it was someone living in one of these places. Is the speaker a man or a woman? The text is completely uh, un, uh, unclear about that. Um, in, in Pali, uh, you don't specify the gender of the third person. There's no he or she or it. You just have the third person, ati. So it could be a woman. We don't know. Uh, we have to remember that uh, in the earliest period uh, of the Buddha's, um, you know, close to the Buddha's time, um, both men and women left home. And not just... It wasn't just the Buddhist community that accepted them, but the Jains did. There are records in the, in the Pali Canon of other renunciant groups of which there were men and women. It, it, it was not an exclusively male environment. We don't know. I've translated it as he, uh, more on the basis of the fact that that's my gender. But the, you, there's no reason why we couldn't translate it as she. One of the reactions contemporary people might immediately feel towards this text is that it has a certain world-denying uh, ascetic quality that might put us off a bit. It's, it's, it's rather strong on the renunciation. But here we have to be careful not to project our own modern values back into the 5th century BCE. If someone were to speak like this today, then yes, it would sound rather overly uh, ascetic. But you have to remember the context of the period in which this was written, or, or maybe not even written, but composed mentally, orally, and recited. The what the, the Buddha and uh, his contemporaries offered in uh, the Gangetic Plain uh, of that period, was an opportunity for a life of the mind. For the vast majority of the population, unlike the case today, people did not have education. They did not have much social freedom or mobility. Um, they were very much tied to the agrarian uh, production of the village lifestyle. Um, they wouldn't have had much free time. And these renunciant movements, we use the word renunciant, were basically the, f the first people who were able, because of the economic surplus that began in that period, 
uh, to, to be freed from those obligations. And they would have needed, I think, a very strong justification for making that break with their families. And this would have been supported very much in terms of freeing oneself from the cycle of birth and death. And clearly the author of this poem would have come from that environment and hence that rather, perhaps a rather strong need to constantly reaffirm this renunciation, this break with the repetitive cyclic life of agrarian subsistence and the beginning of a life of independence, of solitude, where one can think and reflect and meditate um, purely in one's own terms. And this was a a totally revolutionary break at that period. So one could argue, well, what's then this got to do with us today? I think that texts like this uh, from all traditions, um, although they reflect the period in which they were written, it's impossible for them not to. At the same time, they are addressing... um, the concerns of what it means to be human. And so you have the strange relationship with these writings. They both uh, seem to present something quite foreign and remote, and yet the content of much of what's said uh, strikes us very uh, immediately in terms of our own concerns now. And that, I think, is why these texts have survived Uh, People have dedicated their lives to memorizing them, reciting them, eventually writing them down, copying them, uh, preserving them against threats of war and so on for more than 2,000 years. And I don't think this would have been done had these texts not continued to speak to subsequent generations. As I would argue, they speak to us today. Just as an example um, from another tradition, this is from the Epicurean tradition. Um, This is a passage from Lucretius who was writing in the the first century BC in, in Italy. You get a very similar tone. This is from book three of his um, his only work, called The Nature of Things. Thus, in this way, each man is running from himself, yet still because he clings to that same self, although against his will and clearly can't escape from it, he loathes it, for he's ill, but doesn't grasp the cause of his disease. Could he, but see this, could he but see this clear enough, a man would drop everything else and study first to understand the nature of things. I feel here there's, there's an extraordinary resonance um, uh, in feel, in tone, in the sort of poetic urgency 
of Lucretius that we find in the author of these Buddhist, early Buddhist poems. But what's also striking about these poems is that the, much of the traditional terminology and language and jargon that we're familiar with from other classical Buddhist writings is completely absent. The author doesn't seem to be interested in scoring doctrinal points. He doesn't seem to be interested at all in trying to um, impose or justify a particular theory, a particular view of the world, a Buddhist view of the world. He seems to be, or she seems to be, um, writing much more from the heart and trying to find a language that um, adequately uh, gives uh, expression uh, to what they feel most deeply. And in this sense, I feel that the medium of poetry is, of course, particularly uh, uh, appropriate. So what we're doing, in a sense, with these texts is we're tapping back into a very early period before Buddhism became Buddhism, if you wish. Nonetheless, as we read these poems, we do hit upon some of the classical terminology that we're familiar with. And there's two terms in particular here in this uh, first poem that um, use uh, the language of uh, the four tasks. Um, it says, for example, hard is it to let go of what drives us. And this is the same let go Pahana, as in the um, second noble task, to let go of grasping, to let go of craving. But what we get here, instead of being given, as it were, just a statement, the second task is to let go of craving, which is a bit dry, to put it mildly. Here we have um, that idea of letting go as a deeply personal struggle, as something actually painful. Hard is it to let go of what drives us. Hard to be free from the wants that bind us to the thrill of being alive. Hankering for what's gone and to come. Hunger for those delights now. So craving here is no longer just a kind of you know, Buddhist concept, a bad thing we need to get rid of. But here it's expressed in, in, in almost excruciatingly personal terms. Wants that bind us, hankering, hunger. And when he says it's hard to let go, He's acknowledging that these, um, these impulses, these instincts, these pressures, these drives um, are, are almost overwhelming. And again, I think this honesty 
reflects very much the kind of experience we often have when we come on a retreat. We come with the noblest of intentions, I I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) At least we have a certain, uh, you know, a certain intention to to, to transcend our habitual reactive behavior to some degree. And yet here we have the account of a person who is, um, you know, hidden away in a cave somewhere uh, a long, long time ago, um, who has experiencing pretty much the same kind of stuff that is going on, I suspect, with many of us. And it's here that we really touch, I think, upon the humanity of the text. There's no pretense here that this is, you know, that this person is some enlightened being who's floating above it all, speaking from a detached vantage point of enlightenment. We don't get that at all here. This is a person who's deeply engaged in a struggle. So we have in the very first verse the acknowledgement that he's or she is struggling to let go of something. And this will be the theme right through the poems that follow. You could almost uh, give us a title to these poems, um, How to Live a Life Without Opinions, How to Let Go of What Keeps Us Somehow Stuck and Trapped and locked into cyclic habitual behavior. And as we'll see, as you've probably already looked at the text, um, the author identifies the, the, the source of much of this compulsive behavior with a certain uh, attachment to things either being or not being, things either are or are not which is the basic uh, duality that's built into language itself. We'll come back to that. He's also aware, or she's also, I'm going to say he from now on, but but please don't think it is gendered in this way, it's not. Um, He's also very aware that he's on his own. He says, hard is it to be free from these things. In other words, it's very difficult for me to do anything about this. And then he acknowledges, no one else can save you. No Buddha, no God, no guru. You're totally on your own with this. No one else can do anything about it at all. And again, this is a somewhat bitter pill to swallow. It's far more... Um, appealing to think that you know there's some enlightened person or some divine presence or whatever that will do the work for us that we just have to trust in that but here we have a rather um, uh, unadorned acknowledgement the responsibility for making any significant you know change in our lives ultimately comes down to our own efforts, our own, our own practice. Now the other word that he uses that um, refers to the four tasks is in the last two 
verses of the poem where he says, embrace what you meet and don't be obsessed. And in the verse after that, embrace what you perceive and cross the flood. And this word embrace is exactly the same word, parinya, that we were speaking about yesterday. Now, since parinya, embrace, is not a term that we find widely in the Buddhist canon, I again find it striking that here in this very early poem, the word is repeated in the first uh, poem twice, quite explicitly. That he sees his practice as one in which one embraces two things. First of all, what you meet is how I've translated it. Um, the word in Pali is pasa, usually translated as contact. Embrace what impacts you might be more literal. Pasa, usually translated as contact, literally means touch. Um, tactile sensation. So he's basically saying be totally open to what impinges on your eyes and your ears and your nose and your tongue and your body and your mind. What comes at you? What strikes you? What contacts you in your flesh through your senses and in your innermost thoughts and feelings? In other words, what happens? And I've often translated that phrase as what's going on, what's happening. So a total kind of openness to what's happening. But also embrace what you perceive. Now perceive is again, an, or perception, sanya, um, is again, it's a, it's a standard Buddhist term. But what is the difference between what you perceive and what you encounter or what you meet? What you perceive is how you make sense of what impacts your experience. In other words, as I gave the example yesterday, um, I, when I was sitting, my leg fell asleep, I didn't really realise it, I stood up, stumbled and stubbed my toe. Got a nice bruise on one of my toes. And that's, that was the pasa, impact, contact. But then the perception of that was, oh, I, maybe I've broke, oh, broken my toe. Oh, how am I going to get up the stairs this afternoon? All of the stuff that then runs a, a, a commentary uh, on that situation that um, accelerates quite quickly into a kind of mental anguish. So in other words, we encounter a world or the world impacts us and then we represent it to ourselves as being this or that, good or bad, right or wrong, pleasant or unpleasant. Immediately we proceed into a kind of comparative mind. And so what the author's saying is embrace that. He's not, not, he's, not, he's not saying don't do that because he seems to be sufficiently aware that that's simply how our 
organism is, is built. That, that's what the human being does. There's the world impacts, and then there's a story, a picture, a narrative, associations, memories. And that's not good or bad. That's simply what happens. So you extend your parinya, your embrace, your fully knowing, to that as well. So the, the, the challenge, I think, of uh, this kind of uh, awareness practice um, is to always somehow keep the awareness or the field of attention at least a millimeter wider than whatever is going on. And I've noticed actually quite often that it's when the awareness narrows to being less than the totality of what's going on, it's then that we kind of lose it. We get carried off, we get carried away. Now again, this sounds like a nice idea, but of course in practice it's actually very difficult. We're constantly finding ourselves somehow overwhelmed and submerged by the sheer uh, torrent of stuff, or what he calls the flood, which is again a term we see often in Buddhism. Uh, it's as though we're flooded. Cross the flood, he says. How does it go? Embrace what you perceive and cross the flood. The flood uh, is sometimes called the flood of Mara, of the demonic. And that flood very often submerges us or washes it away. It's the kind of the, the tsunami of the mind. And I'm sure we've all had those experiences where you know, we, we, we've been meditating, everything in our life is going fairly well. And then suddenly, boom, we're overwhelmed by something again. Something unexpected takes place, something we don't particularly anticipate or want and the next thing we know it's running us and I think one gets a very acute uh, sense of that experience in, in this particular uh, poem there seem to be two core positive values that are expressed uh, in this poem. Uh, the first is the idea of solitude itself. And we'll come back to that. The other one is the idea of leading a life that is uh, in balance. The word is samma, which actually comes, it's very close to the English word same, samma. And visama means imbalance, out of kilter out of harmony. And what the poet seems to be uh, aspiring for is the capacity to be alone in solitude, to not be somehow constantly being uh, overwhelmed by things, and at the same time finding a life that is balanced, that's somehow in harmony, that we don't feel as though we are in endless perpetual conflict or struggle with what's happening, but we've found a capacity to be harmonious, to be balanced, to be still, in the midst perhaps even of 
the most disturbing things. And he says, don't be thrown off course for the sake of what you know to be unbalanced. There's a couple of um, suggestions here that we, we, we know what it is that we would prefer to be doing, but we don't do it. He says here, for example, avoid indulging in what you reproach yourself for. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself indulging in what I reproach myself for a lot of the time. <laughs> and the irony is that we, we, we might have made even a very conscious decision not to do that kind of thing again, not to get caught up in that sort of way of thinking or behaving or speaking, and yet we keep doing it. Uh, Aristotle called it uh, akrasia, akrasia, I think which sometimes is translated as inner incontinence. (laughs) The acrasic person uh, is a person who keeps doing what they don't want to do. And the author of this text seems to be acutely aware of that. So a life that's governed by the flood of Mara, a life that's governed by what he calls karma or drives or desires or dark passions is one in which we're constantly being prompted by some fear or some desire and it then causes us to sort of lurch ahead. And if something threatening happens, then we recoil. And worries nag away. And twinges of pain irritate us. And thoughts of um, negative thoughts spiral us down into a sort of inner gloom. And then suddenly the mind is sharp, it's clear, content, still. And in the midst of that you start imagining how you're going to impress other people with your, your spiritual poise and your inner control. It's endless. It's endless. So solitude has nothing to do with hiding yourself away on a retreat. Again, it's sort of obvious in a way, but worth reflecting on. And I find that the opening verse is, 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 catches this extremely well. The creature concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. So even though you are in your retreat hut, you are far from being solitary because you are, as it were, peopled by these ideas, images, fears, stories, memories, plans, and that's what it is that uh, is crowded, not um, being in a busy city. The word he uses, um, guha, 
um, refers uh, uh, literally to um, a hidden place. Um, giri guha means the guha of um, a giri, a hill or a mountain, and it refers to the the sort of little cr- nooks and crannies, the little clefts and ravines where you can sort of find solitude and quiet. And as I already mentioned, it's also came to be used to describe li- 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 literally a, a monastic cell cut into a mountain. But it's also, uh, in its ad- adjectival form, uh, it means secret. Secret place. And I think what he's, he's, he's pointing to here is that um, uh, our, our innermost guha, or cell, or cave, is that innermost part of ourselves that's most deeply private. Those kind of inner recesses within ourselves where we retreat in a kind of almost anxious loneliness and where we kind of indulge our repetitive thoughts and feelings and our obsessions and our despondency. It's that part of ourselves that is so impossible to share with anyone else. The innermost part of ourselves. And there's possibly nothing more private, nothing we're less willing to share than this insistent inward rumination. Now that's the very opposite to meditation or to what we're seeking to cultivate here. And yet, probably for much of the time when we sit in meditation we're often retreating to that kind of inner loneliness and rumination, what, 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 what he, the, the poet calls being sunk in dark passions. He uses the word sunk, sinking. We're sunk in this space. And I think it's quite easy sometimes to mistake this for the practice of awareness, the practice of meditation. Both, of course, are, in a way, obviously, inner, inward reflections on our condition. And I think we have to be careful to differentiate the two. So, to be in solitude, in the positive way, and viveka, the word used here, is certainly considered to be a value uh, in Buddhist tradition. Uh, the monastery at Chithurst, for example, that Ajahn Sumedho founded, is called Chitta Viveka, which means uh, solitude of the heart. Chitta, heart, viveka, solitude. And in later tradition, not in this um, uh, text, um, they speak of kaya viveka and chitta viveka. Kaya viveka means the solitude of the body. That's pretty easy. You just go and stick yourself in a cave somewhere. 
But the real challenge is citta viveka, the solitude of the heart. Now the solitude of the heart is um, a long, long way from being sunk in your dark inner ruminations. So what is it then? I think the key difference is that one finds a capacity to be with whatever is going on, but not being of it. In other words, rather than let those thoughts and emotions and fears and whatnot somehow drag you down and run your inner life, you are able to cultivate a space in which you can see that going on. You're attentive and aware. Your mind is somehow uh, uh, detached enough to notice that, to have a certain ironic self-regard. You can see yourself doing this rather than letting it spin you out. There's another verse in the uh, Sutta Nipata. For those of you who are interested, it's verse 1065. That compares um, solitude to space, to akasha, space. So the the solitude uh, is spacious, whereas this kind of, um, you know, sunk in one's dark passions is the very opposite it's, it's, almost, it's deeply claustrophobic. Whereas the solitude that's being spoken of here is like space. But what does he perhaps mean here? I think that in some ways space is, 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 is used in Buddhism uh, as a metaphor for a, an open, unobstructed space or presence. And whatever moves through that space does not affect the space. In other words, if a, if a saint walks through the space or a sinner walks through the space, if a beautiful person or an ugly person walks through the space, the space shows no preference, no liking or disliking but simply allows whatever comes to come and to go. And that, I feel, again, is very much an element of what it means to embrace, to fully know. One of the uh, few passages in the canon, this is in the, um, the Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 22, actually gives us a definition of Parinya, fully knowing. Uh, The Buddha is asked, what does it mean to fully know? What what does it mean to embrace? And his answer is the end of greed, the end of hatred, the end of bewilderment. Ragakayo, dosakayo, mohakayo. Now that's odd. At least I found that odd when I first read it. In what way is an embrace the end of something? 
Usually we think of an embrace not as ending, but in a way maybe beginning something. To fully know something here is described as the ending of something else. What this points to, I feel, is that fully knowing is certainly not just reducible to a certain kind of cognition, but rather it suggests a a radiant, open-hearted equanimity. In other words, a frame of mind, a, a quality of consciousness that's not determined by greed, not determined by hate, and not determined by moha, darkness, bewilderment, confusion, stupidity, foolishness. But this is not simply an absence. It's not as though those things, when they're gone, boom, you've got it. But rather, it points to the fact that these qualities, greed, hatred, delusion, somehow uh, prevent us from embracing our life in its totality in a way that's not conditioned by greed, self-centeredness, and so forth and so on. And curiously, this same definition that we find for parinya, embracing, fully knowing life, is also the definition of nirvana. You find the same phrase used to define nirvana as is used to define fully knowing and further still in the, uh, in the Asankata Sanyutta uh, in the Pali Canon it's the definition of the unconditioned now, the unconditioned is often capital U, ultimate truth, something like that. Whereas uh, in, in the Sangyutta, uh, in the Asankata Sangyutta, the Buddha defines it as end of greed, end of hatred, end of confusion. In other words, unconditioned doesn't refer to some ultimate kind of state or some ultimate reality or something, but it refers simply to a way of being in this world that is unconditioned by greed and hatred and confusion. If you take greed, hatred, confusion out of the mix, you're left with their, their opposites in a sense, a detachment, an open-heartedness, an equanimity, a kind of radiancy or brightness of the mind. And again, these are metaphors, but I think that adequately, in a sense, describes those moments when we would say to ourselves, that was a good sitting. That, that was a good one. And I think, and I, when I say that, I tend to refer to a, a frame of mind in which I was not under the direction or influence or control of those instincts but had found almost that rare capacity to be open, to be bright, to be clear, to be still. And that is the unconditioned. 
nirvana, fully knowing. Another term that's going to be recurring throughout these four poems um, that I've already alluded to once is this tension between is and is not. And in the verse, the poet says, I see people tremble on this earth, compelled by a thirst, a craving for what's going on. Weak men gabbling in the mouth of death. Their thirst for it is and it is not unquenched. Now the word that I've translated as it is and it is not is bhava-bhava, which is a compound of two words, bhava, which means becoming or existence or being, and abhava, which means not becoming, not existing, not being. Yet the two have become one word. Now if you look in different translations of this same verse, and there are several in English, I've referenced them, um, this is what you find. You find states of becoming and not, is one translation, their thirst for states of becoming and not unquenched. That's Ajantanisaru. K.R. Norman says various existences. Uh, Dr. Sadatisa says repeated birth. And these are all used to translate bhava-bhava. I checked elsewhere in the canon at Bhikkhu Bodhinyanamoli's um, translations and they render it as whether things are so or are not so, which is much closer to what I would choose. And elsewhere in another sutta they translate it as becoming this or that. Um, just as an aside, really, uh, this is a fairly good example of the difficulty one has just working with English texts. It would be very difficult to know in reading these different translations that they were referring to the same term. How would you think a repeated birth could be translated as it is and it is not? Probably not. It, it suggests... Um, an, uh, an interpretation that is already more concerned with the problem of rebirth and not getting reborn again rather than what seems to be the focus of these poems which has got nothing to do with rebirth as we can see the very last line of the last verse says having extracted the arrow he is vigilant not longing for this world or the next got nothing to do with getting out of the cycle of rebirth. It has to do with getting out of a particular frame of mind that compulsively um, defines and analyzes and represents experience in dualistic uh, in a dualistic frame of reference. We're going to come back to that because that's very much at the heart of this whole sequence of poems is how do we 
find a way of being in this world in which we're no longer even driven by the dualities of it is and it is not. Is it possible even to find a frame of mind that is beyond, as it were, the uh, beginnings and the uh, projects of this, that, like, dislike, pleasure, pain, wanting, not wanting, being, not being, is, is not. And we'll come later in the week to the text which is called Tu Kachanagota. It's in your handout. Um, and that makes exactly the same point in a somewhat uh, more philosophical type language. But finally, um, the image that uh, occurs at the end uh, is again a very famous image in Buddhism. And that is the idea that um, of extracting the arrow. Having extracted the arrow, he is vigilant, the text says, not longing for this world, not longing for the next. Now the arrow um, is a very old Buddhist uh, metaphor and it refers to craving, grasping. And you're probably familiar with the, um, the parable of the arrow where a person is lying bleeding to death on the ground from a wound by an arrow and, but he won't let anyone remove the arrow until he knows the name of the person who shot it and so on. And meanwhile, that person dies, bleeds to death, because he won't let the arrow be taken out until he has all this information about it. And the Buddha says, likewise, a person who, who postpones the practice of the Dharma until he or she has got answers to the great metaphysical questions, are the body and the mind the same or different? Does the world have a beginning, have an end? Such people, too, will bleed metaphorically to death before they even get round to doing any practice. So it's interesting that that arrow metaphor, again, is linked with um, an obsession with metaphysics, with the big questions and getting answers to them and having a nice, convenient and agreed set of beliefs about things. What's often, though, uh, not emphasized so much is that um, the point of removing the arrow is not just to remove the arrow. It's not just to get rid of that immediate pain, which would be, in a sense, the experience of nirvana, the stopping of craving. But once you remove the arrow, then the person is able to live a healthy and fulfilled life and flourishing life. The problem with being wounded is not just that it hurts, but because it prevents you from doing anything else. So here I feel that, again, there's a, again, a slightly less obvious reference. But this, I think, describes the move from the third task to the fourth task. Removing the arrow is 
like experiencing the stopping of craving. But that is a useful and valuable thing to do, not because it just removes that pain, but because it enables you to get up and get on with your life. And that is the fourth task. I think this is a very clear example of how nirvana, or the stopping of that grasping, uh, is not an end in itself, or the goal of the path, but actually what enables the path to happen, to begin, uh, to unfold. And we'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.